the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. All right, Jim, thank you. Good to have Jim filling in for Craig. Craig will be back on Monday. By the way, it's Friday, January 26, 2024. But I'll be gone all next week. Not to worry, you'll be in very good hands. And uh, we'll leave it at that. I repeat the great news of the afternoon. We had Bruno the dog here at 3.05, our pet of the week. He and his sister were both adopted by 4.45. Yay! Hooray! I'm in a great mood. 6.05 today, it's Michael Aaron Woody. This hour, I canceled the open line after seeing the news headlines here, and I wanted to have this conversation with the good professor before I take off on vacation. If you haven't been following the news, the International Court of Justice today ordered Israel to do more to prevent the killing of civilians in Gaza, but did not call for a ceasefire. Disappointing Palestinians who had hoped the court would endorse their pleas for immediate relief from the violence. This happened in a hearing at the Hague's Peace Palace. Now, yesterday we had the local protesters on, pro-Palestinian protesters. So this issue has been on my mind a lot. So we are joined once again by Professor Armstead, who, in addition to all the credentials that we have uh, showcased for him over the years, he is also an expert on international law, and he's the guy to go to on this. Professor, good afternoon. Hi, Dave. How are you? We're good, sir. And by 6 o'clock, we're going to have you adopted. I was just wondering if I'm going to do as well as the dog. <laughs> yeah, you'll do fine. Let's start with a little bit of 101, Professor. What exactly is the International Court of Justice? Well, the when the U.N. was founded, and there were a couple of organizations created. The Security Council, which everybody knows about, which responds uh, to matters of peace and security. So they can immediately respond, and they can give directions to the Secretary General, who's the chief executive of the agencies of the U.N. The General Assembly is the constituent assembly of all the nations that are members. If you sign the U.N. treaty, you become a member of the General Assembly. Now, other institutions are part of the original creation. The International Court of Justice actually is not one of those. It predates the U.N. It is an institution created by the League of Nations in the 1920s. So at the Treaty of Versailles, that was part of the recommendations that Mr. Wilson made. The mandate system, uh, which how nations are controlled when they didn't have their own government, and the International Court of Justice were carryovers from the old League of Nations. Good organiz- good, a good organization uh, didn't accomplish all of its missions, sure. but this particular institution was actually considered very good. Uh, just generally about it, things that you need to know. The all, Almost all of the U.N. members are members, active members of the ICJ. You're automatically a member, you're part of it, it's an institution of the UN. But you have to consider yourself for voluntary jurisdiction for cases. So that's a step beyond just being a treaty member. 
Now, that deals, the ICJ deals with nation states. It's a court of nations. It has jurisdictions over the member states of the United Nations. The other court, which we have talked about in previous shows, the ICC, which I worked on, that deals with individuals who violate the law of war. So there are four very specific crimes that the ICC deals with, and that's a place where under criminal law, and remember the the, the foundation of criminal law is you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime is committed. The ICC is more akin to our civil system, where you have an interest against another party or an interest of your own that another party is attacking or or infringing somehow. So let's say a border dispute is the typical thing that the ICJ would deal with, but also economic uh, issues that come up. So it's actually unusual that the ICJ would be dealing with a war crime. All right. So given that, the second 101 question is why South Africa, meaning South Africa was the one who brought the case. Why were they the ones and what were they claiming, Professor? Well, this is a, a, a very interesting circumstance, and I think you have to look at South African politics to understand why South Africa is at the forefront of this issue. South Africa has been led since uh, majority rule uh, in 1991 by the ANC, the African National Party Convention, the African National Convention. That is a revolutionary party. That is, that was the party that was involved for 50 years or so from 1947 when the, the National Party in South Africa came into power and created the apartheid system until 1991 when majority rule took place. A, a national vote was held and a majority government came into power. As a revolutionary party, they are philosophically allied with other revolutionary states, that is, states that have overcome colonialism, uh, states that have changed from monarchy to, uh, to democracy or some other form of government, and overthrown a previous government. They look upon themselves as being revolutionary. In addition to that, they feel in concert with places where they think there is a what's called a settler regime. That is, a minority operates to the disenfranchisement of a majority of people in a particular area. Okay. So there's a nexity, a political nexity with them. So you have the ANC being in an alliance, loosely a philosophical alliance, with Hamas. They support Hamas, support their interests. They feel that as a revolutionary government led by a revolutionary party, they are in concert with other people that they see as oppressed and that they would like to help. So you've got that connection. Now, because both are member states of the ICJ, the South Africans felt it would be in their interest politically to bring this in support because of that philosophical connection. But in addition to that, this is looked upon, the, this, this issue of the war, this is looked upon as a north-south issue. Small uh, developing states versus the major industrialized states of the north that see the interest of 
quote unquote oppressed people differently. All right. So given that, what was it that South Africa was claiming? What did they ask the International Court of Justice to do? Well, essentially three things. They wanted a a statement by the court a finding that genocide had taken place, that the current war on the part of the Israelis against Hamas amounts to genocide of the Palestinian people. So that's one, one of the things they wanted. And did they get that? uh, No, they did not get that. Two, they wanted an immediate cessation. They wanted an order for an immediate cessation of hostilities. There is some question as whether or not the uh, the ICJ has jurisdiction to do that, but that's a, a legal problem that, that gets into things that pretty much only lawyers concern themselves with. And the third thing they wanted was an investigation of Israeli tactics and operations to demonstrate that all of the things necessary to prove genocide were there and weren't being done, supervised, approved, uh, reported on by the rest of the world. That the, the world's press, the other nations in the world weren't doing enough to be involved, and they were taking the lead to, to elucidate, if you will. So that was the, the, the principal focus of the, uh, of the case that they, they brought against Israel. So I circle back to the beginning when I read the opening paragraph of the Washington Post. The International Court of Justice ordered Israel to do more to prevent the killing of civilians in Gaza, which sounds similar to Professor to the rhetoric of President Biden. Biden supports Israel, but he wants them to do more to spare civilians. This sounds like a similar tone. I, I think very much so. I think you're correct in, in that analysis. The what you might say the court did, they got a political hot potato. This is clearly political issue. We've been talking about it since October as a matter of politics and strategy. This is the first time actual law has been brought up in a legal forum. We've certainly talked about international law perhaps being violated in a number of ways, given examples in our discussions when we dealt with particular military tactics, the bombing of cities, bombing of hospitals, uh, civilian targets uh, being hit, although the excuse was there were enemies there, there were tunnels, uh, facilities underneath the hospitals, underneath apartment buildings, and so forth. We've had that sort of discussion. Now, rather than a political discussion that has overtones of international law, something may or may not have been violated, some particular aspect, we now have a case where we're saying in a court of law that the law regarding the Genocide Convention, to which Israel and South Africa are both parties, as are we, by the way, to that con- the second part of that convention has been violated. That there has been a killing. Now, the, the, the strict definition, if you will, of, of genocide involves the intent to destroy a national, racial, or ethnic group. Now, there are all kinds of things underneath that, how you do that, what happens. But that's the crux of it. An intent to destroy, killing, with an intent to destroy a national, racial, or 
ethnic group. I will follow up on that, Professor, but I need to get this break in. Professor James Armstead on this broadcast reacting to the news today about the ruling by the International Court of Justice, which uh, decided that Israel is not guilty of uh, genocide, but they are asking Israel to do more to prevent the killing of civilians. A lot more to come right here on the Dave Congleton Show. All right, we will welcome your phone calls from Professor Armstead after news at the bottom of the hour as we talk about the International Court of Justice and their ruling involving Israel today. And, Professor, just before the break, we were talking about the debate over genocide. I had two pro-Palestinian supporters here yesterday who said, clearly, Israel is guilty of genocide. I'd like your thoughts on that, please. Well, I certainly think there is evidence that the Israelis may, and I emphasize may, not have conducted their operations with the total care and concern that are required by law in the conduct of of operations, i.e., when you bomb a target in a built-up area. Uh, You have to designate that target in such a manner and use such weapons that you only destroy the military use of the particular target without creating collateral damage that's unnecessarily harming those innocent people who are outside the target area, at the edge of the target area, or on the way to the target area. That's required under international law. Uh, has that been violated? I would say that needs to be looked at. And that's one of the things that the court says, that they want the an investigation to, to be accomplished and a report back from Israel within 30 days uh, that give us the military records that show us what targets you were aimed you were aiming for, what you used, what was the uh, the instrument of destruction that was used. Was it too big? Hmm. Was it too big? Was it something that was a an area weapon, and we should have used a particular weapon? Now this it's it's a lot more difficult than what that sounds like. Uh, if I like, just to write a, a, a large example here, in World War Two, the the five hundred pound bomb that was a standard bomb that our bombers used. So B seventeens flying over Germany, carpet bombing of Dresden, for example, to destroy the military capability of the city of Dresden, the railroad facilities, the warehousing, the factories that built weapons, that sort of thing. To to destroy a target, it took somewhere around 500 bombs. 500. I mean, think about that number. So you had to send multiples of airplanes to knock out a factory, a railroad depot, a weapons storage facility, a, a refinery. Now, modernly, if you, we all remember the first couple of days of the first 
that war in Iraq. And we were fight, we were trying to, to knock out the intelligence and the aircraft, the anti-aircraft capability of Saddam Hussein's regime. Right. So we were firing rockets at particular buildings. We found out where some of the generals were um, that we were looking for, the chief of intelligence in particular we were looking for. We could put a missile in a certain window of a building, not the building, a window of the building where we thought was the area in which a commander was located or a particular part of the facility. We could knock that out. So in World War II, carpet bombing was not a violation of international law if it were a legitimate target you were after. Today, that would be a violation of international law. So Air Chief Marshal uh, Harris, would, the bomber Harris, would be the, the criminal that everyone talks about. I mean, he's talked about now, you know, as a criminal, there was a terrible thing doing what we did. That was not a violation at the time, because the weapons were not capable of being able to target with specificity what you were looking for without tremendous collateral damage. Now we're able to do that. So, so what's uh, oh, good I, in the ninety seconds? So crime then is not a crime now, yeah. and vice versa. Now you you mentioned that before that Dresden would not be allowed today because the no, the rules of engagement today. have changed. Yes, right. No so, carbon bombing. So you, we have better weapons. Do you expect Israel to comply with the International Court of Justice and the request for information? Well. The, the, the rule, the ruling says 30 days. Israel has to make a report in 30 days. Now, things that they're going to expect, they want to see the target list. That that'll be something that they're 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 looking at. And here's where the lawyers for both sides and the court will look very carefully. If a particular target that's designated, let's say a hospital, an apartment building that was destroyed, that target was designated. We want to know why that was a target. Why is that apartment building, that hospital a target? The answer, uh, it's a military facility of Hamas. There's a headquarters there. There's a target uh, in the uh, in the basement tunnels that are beneath it that connect that place uh, with several headquarters or weapons are stored there, that sort of thing. So we need the evidence that that's there. You know, what's the evidence? You know, what? give us your intelligence. How do you know that's there? So is that, one, a legitimate target? Two, did you have to destroy the entire building to be able to knock out that target? Was there some other way of, uh, of doing that? You know, because you sent a raiding party in, you know, where in the war are you with the ground war? Because the air war, the ground war connected, obviously. All right, I need to stop you there. We've got California Headline News and ABC Radio News. Jim Richards filling in for the vacation in Craig Hill. Gives us all the latest in time saver traffic and weather together. We get Professor Armstead's reaction, more of it, to the ruling today by the International Court of Justice. Your phone calls and text messages still to come. All that on the Friday edition of Hometown Radio. You have landed on the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Dr. James Armstead is with us, reacting to the news today out of The Hague that the International Court of Justice declined to um, label 
Israel as committing genocide, but they want Israel to do more to reduce the amount of civilian casualties. What all that means. Uh, Jim, as we continue with you, and I'm going to combine this with a text that's coming on the Stolberg line. I want to talk about the United Nations for a minute. I've grown up hearing about the UN. I've grown up hearing about the UN peacekeeping forces. But here we go again. So I've got a three-part plan. Number one, ceasefire. Number two, release the hostages. Number three, put in UN troops and create a buffer zone between Israel and Gaza. Why is that such a crazy idea? Not a crazy idea at all. I agree with all three of those suggestions. Those are things that not only should happen, that it's a good idea, I think they have to happen if we're going to solve this particular problem. And this doesn't expand and become a much bigger and much more dangerous conflict. You know, taking up the whole Middle East, and who knows where that goes. Uh, So here's what we have to think about. When people talk about, uh, you know, the U.N., we spend a lot of money. You know, we, we want them to do things. You know, they're in New York. They've got this lovely building. People come and talk, but nothing really happens. Nothing gets solved. Well, that's not true. That's not, you can't blame the U.N., for not solving things. The UN is a political organization. It has member states. When member states go to war against each other, for example, Russia and the Ukraine, those are two nation states. They are at war against each other. A political decision was made by one state to invade another. The, the second state is defending itself. So can the UN solve that? No, because you've got members who won't confine themselves to the expected behavior of U.N. members. It's only as strong as the membership. The U.N. was very successful in the 1950s. It solved the smallpox problem. World smallpox was solved by the, the, uh, the World Health Organization, a U.N. arm. It got money. People were in agreement. We wanted this disease, which had been a scourge of humankind for thousands of years. Let, let's, we have a vaccine. Let's get out there, spend the money, get people vaccinated, get a cure. It was solved because there was political agreement by almost all the states. Everybody that could participate uh, did. Nobody disagreed, thought politically, oh, this is good for us not to, not to participate, to stay out of it, etc. And it didn't happen. Peacekeeping is the most difficult thing that we have to think about in the international community. And that's because one nation state wants something. They want territory, they want resources, whatever it happens to be. We're going to pay you back for what you did to us 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and we're going to fight. So no organization can solve that until you get the individual nations to agree that that has to be solved using the U.N. or some other vehicle uh, as a means to negotiate and settle the, uh, the conflict. All right, we're in conversation with Professor Armstead. If you want to join us, feel free to, 805 543 8830 or 800-549-5832. On the Stolberg line, Israel is now being required to account for every bullet. Are they requiring the same of Hamas? Obviously not, Professor. Well, Hamas is not a member of the United Nations. It's not a nation state. So when you want to put your, 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 
you're, you're, maybe this is a bad analogy. You want to put your, your, your hands around the throat of Hamas to bring him someplace legally, to bring them in the court, to, uh, to bring a suit against them, to bring them up for negotiations, uh, whatever it happens to be, whatever form you want to use, how do you get them? Who represents them? Who is going to show up? So it's it's like you know how do you get the mafia to to sit down and talk about a uh, an agreement? All right, uh, you know, with lawful authorities. John is texting on on the Stolberg line. Hey, John, could Professor Armstead speak to the assertions that UN members UN members were involved in the October seventh attacks? Uh, I think what what he's talking—it's not UN members. Uh, there were there have been accusations, apparently with some degree of evidentiary support by the Israelis, that a number seven was the number they gave members of UNWA. Now that's the United Nations uh, employees, the United Nations Relief and Work. Uh, and Works Association, that that group, that U.N. agency, which employs, by the way, 13,000 workers in in Gaza, in the West Bank, 13,000. So the accusation was that seven of those employees were involved in the October 7th raid. Now, today, uh, the evidence, now, this is, this is not open to the public. So we don't know what that evidence is. Like, what, what do we have pictures? Do we have uh, bank reports? Do we have members captured or killed uh, in, of Hamas who were part of uh, UNRWA? Uh, but 20, uh, 12 of the, um, of the employees have been fired by the agency huh. already. All right. Now, so 12 have been fired. Next text. So the UN must have seen something of the evidence that, uh, that seemed. Uh, realistic. Next text on the Stolberg line. Israel's made it clear they were coming in strong. They mean business. And if you don't want to wind up as a casualty, you best get out of the way. Well, now we get to the the criminal intent. Remember the uh, the definition that we have to deal with? Intend to destroy a national, racial, or ethnic group. Intent. Now, in the criminal law, I want to do something. I want the result that I've achieved. I want to kill you. Murder, you know, and I, and I do so. That's murder, you know, and it's murder in the first degree. So that's intentional homicide, intentional homicide. In the criminal law, we also have the concept of criminal negligence. That is, I do an otherwise lawful act, or perhaps an unlawful act, but with such a disregard for what the results are that we can impute intent to my conduct. So I bomb willy-nilly. I'm Bomber Harris. It's 1944. I bombed Dresden. I have smart bombs. I reached into the future to 2024. I have smart bombs. I decide I'm not going to use them. The Germans didn't use those when they bombed London. I'm just going to bomb the hell out of them. I'm going to destroy the city. Burn it down. That would be, and I don't care what happens, that would be criminal negligence. Did I intend to violate criminal law? No. Did I have the intent to create lots of civilian casualties? Not directly. 
that I act with a reckless disregard. That is, I didn't care because I my intent was to achieve my mission, destroying the military capability of that city. I intended to do that, and I wasn't going to be deterred by concerns about collateral damage. I did it with such recklessness that thousands of civilians were needlessly killed even though it was a legitimate target that I was going after. Yeah, makes sense. All right, Dr. James Armstead back on this broadcast. We always appreciate his expertise. Uh, he's reacting to the uh, decision this morning issued by the International Court of Justice. And just the overall implications of all this. What does this decision mean? What should the average person take away from this, Professor? Well, this is only a start. The, a lot of people think that Israel get off the hook today because they were not, there was no finding of genocide. That's not exactly true. What the court said is that there, there's been tr- tremendous uh, number of deaths here, large number of deaths in the, uh, the three months or so, for almost four months now, of war that's, that's gone on. And what the court is demanding within 30 days, a report that justifies the conduct of the Israeli military forces, that were these legitimate military targets you were going after, did you conduct the operation with due regard for civilian casualties that might take place, and what is your continued plan for the prosecution of this war? Those are three of the things that the Israelis are going to have to show, and there could be a finding. The with the the analogy I just gave of a rec- acting with a reckless disregard, that is a possible finding. So Israel is not off the hook. So that's thirty days. I would say the implications of this case legally may go on for years because it's going to take a while to get to to the bottom of all this. But the political implications are vast. Hmm. That not only going on for years uh, in terms of what the finding is, but immediately the political implications are, if in fact Israel has acted with a reckless disregard, then the political support for them, the moral authority we've been talking about for the last couple of months in our discussions about this, where does a nation state, another nation state stand, the Germans, the French, us, the Brits, where do we stand supporting Israel as an ally if they're found in violation of the law. Which leads to so the next question. Which leads political to, issue, very important. Uh, so if you take the U.S. out of the equation, who are the other strong allies of Israel? Well, Germany, uh, France, uh, the U.K., these are very strong, very important allies. And these now, not only are they allies, but these are also nations which sell armaments to the Israelis. So their ability to continue and prosecute the war, to have a strong defense there, as they would say, they live in a tough neighborhood and they need to be prepared, that all of their focus on a strong national defense depends upon an alliance structure that's um, uh, that, that's a, a, a it's it, it's a bilateral relationships with a number of these states. They don't have the alliance structure like we right. have in NATO, which is a multilateral uh, regional security defense institution. But they're bilateral. Right. Bilateral relations are political. Sure, let's take a and call. How do you keep them? We got Joseph and Oceano on KVEC. Hi, Joseph. 
Hi, Dave. Hi, Hi Doctor. Uh, Hi, I wanted to say thank you for your uh, insights. Thanks, Dave, for covering this topic from every which way you can. Sure. Um, yeah, from my my opinion, if I was a judge in a court um, and seeing what what has happened and the casualties of so many children um, still dying and just how it looks like, uh, you know, just completely destroyed and all the comments of uh, high ranking from Netanyahu his in his own words it's funny though because they they say when they when he speaks in English he says he says different things and when he speaks in um, um, Hebrew in their language in Hebrew in their language um, they he's saying you know all these horrible things and then to me which uh, implies you know intent to uh, commit a genocide. And I don't really think it's a war happening. Just the numbers tell it to me, it's just a massacre. And I just hope, um, you know, one day we, we could look back and all of us agree and right. say, you know, it was a real bad choice. Stay with us, Joseph. What do you say, doctor? All of what you're saying focuses on the evidence we need to put together for the case. The kinds of statements that, 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 come across as racist, statements that come across as uh, not caring what the collateral damage is, all of that will be part of the, uh, the evidentiary uh, paraphernalia that supports whether or not we come to the conclusion that there's genocide. But you're absolutely right. Those are the things that need to be looked at. And that, uh, and if they have been violated, uh, they need to be corrected immediately, and Israel needs to, uh, to pay the price. What else, Joseph? Yeah, and as each day goes on, and each uh, there's more Palestinians being killed, innocent uh, children and women. It's only gonna it's only gonna make the cause, and uh, you know they're they're called martyrs when they die. Uh, Palestinians, they're not called murdered, uh, you know, bad guys. They're, to them, they're a martyr, and their whole families are gonna just keep fighting. And they're, we're creating what Israel's doing is creating more of uh, so-called, you know, bad guys, Muslim uh, fighters, because they're just killing, wiping them out. Jim. That's, that's all I had to say. All right, Joseph, you're, thank you. Go ahead, Jim. Your logic is impeccable. If you, you, uh, a child grows up, my father was killed, collateral damage. You know, the Israelis legitimately going after Hamas decides to do it in such a manner that people are killed who are not part of this fight. They are brought into it uh, if that's what's happened. If that's done, what's that going to do to the son or the grandson of that person? You're creating more enemies, another generation of enemies. We've got an implacable conflict as it is because of old grudges, old fights, old disagreements over land. This goes back to, uh, to most immediately, it goes back to Versailles. And Dave is probably sighing now. Uh, I, I think everything in the 20th century goes back to Versailles, and usually I can prove it. But this goes directly back to Versailles. Britain had a mandate in the area. They divided land between the uh, the Palestinians uh, who were there, uh, who had moved into the area over the centuries, and the uh, and, and and Jews who were coming back to the Holy Land uh, because of conflicts in other places where they lived, and. They were fighting over land. Where's the arable land? Who gets it? How was it governed? 
what is the government uh, that the the Brits are going to have with the people there? Are they part of it? Did we create a democracy? How is it done? All right, we are in conversation. Was it settled in 1919, and it's not settled now. All right, we are in conversation with Professor James Armstead, getting the very latest news out of Israel and what is happening there. We go to Mike in Los Osos. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Hey, Mike. Uh, so I see it uh, completely differently. I'm, I'm amazed that, um, once again, I'm not amazed. Uh, going with the, uh, the narrative, October 7th was, a, was, was one of the worst things I've seen in my lifetime, uh, worst massacres. Uh, it had a little, you know, a little bit of the media uh, narrative for a and then they switch, they turn on Israel. I'm not defending Israel. I'm just saying there's always an agenda there. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Armstead is a classic example. of uh, uh, When I hear him speak, it, it, I understand why there's rampant anti-Semitism on college campuses, and Jews are being terrorized across them and in blue cities. I get it and other folks that you've had, other Cal Poly professors, it's just rampant in academia. It's mm-hmm. vile, and it's evil. Yeah, but Professor, okay? Armstead, in my Professor Armstead isn't teaching on a college campus right now. Okay, well, he is a... And I'm not anti-Semitic. He's, and, he's, and he's not anti-Semitic, which you're implying. Well, you're that, you're, you're, that, pu- you're that pushing my, it close to the edge. That is my take on it. He is part, he is part of the juggernaut. He does. He's done it with Ukraine and everything else. To me, it's sickening. But I want it, I want you to understand that when what happened on October seventh, okay? What has happened? But Mike, what has happened since October seventh? No. What? No. What? Ha- what has happened since October seventh? The gloves came off, and I'm justifying the gloves coming off. Mm-hmm. Professor, you want to comment on any of this? Well, that that particular point of view is against international law. Because well, one party the, the does something illegal, it doesn't allow you to do anything in response. That's right. You can doctor, defend yourself, absolutely. You can't commit doctor, violations of international law because somebody else does it. Doctor? Yes, sir. I don't believe that America should even bother respecting international law. The U.N. right now, we cut funding, thank God, to some sane people in the government to the U.N. because there were people within the U.N. who were involved in the October 7th attacks. Well, we already okay. addressed that. Uh, okay, let, let, let's straighten the facts out there. It's not that we cut funding to the U.N. We cut our funding of UNRWA, this particular agency. As soon as we got the evidence that these people had been involved. All right. And remember, that isn't public yet. Yeah. This is shameful. Yeah, well, it's shameful for you to call in and make these accusations, Mike. All right? I've got a distinguished professor here with a distinguished legal career. He's a respected international attorney. He's nice enough to donate his time to explain to us what's happening with these different bodies of international law. You don't have to agree with the guy, but you don't call in and suggest that he's anti-Semitic. I got to go. 
Let me take a break. We'll come back, wrap things up with Professor Armstead. I'm Dave Congleton. My vacation's almost here. I will be away all next week. Uh, Gary J. Freiberg on Monday. Janet Trumpeter on Tuesday. Jim Siebert on Wednesday. Dr. Scott Robertson on Thursday. Craig on Friday. And I'll be back with you a week from Monday. I've got a couple minutes left with Professor Armstead. What happens to Netanyahu, Professor? I think his career is over no matter what happens uh, with, with, with the war and with the court. That... Um, the 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 Israeli governmental response uh, first was inadequate when the the original attack on October seventh was made. It took a number of hours to uh, to get police and military responding uh, to where they needed to be, uh, and I think that needs to be looked at internally. That's an Israeli problem. You know, how did they respond? How are they organized? What are the uh, the military assets available distributed around the country? Because they know that they're facing tremendous danger. A lot of information was available right. ahead of time, as we now know, about this raid, the potential of it happening. And the Israelis didn't seem to respond with the normal alacrity that we have seen with them. So that's there. Now, the response on the war, uh, have we made the war larger than it needs to be to uh, defeat Hamas? Have we worked with our international partners, with Jordan, with Egypt, with us, with the United States, and the Europeans to, uh, to bring international forces into the area to, to, to quell the disturbance in Gaza, the civil disturbance that was going across Gaza, and then allowing the Israelis to perform their raids to go after Hamas, could it have been done in a more efficient and effective manner? Right. So those questions, I think, need to be answered. Uh, and those are serious questions for the Israelis. And, of course, for us as allies and the other Israeli allies, what kind of uh, suggestions are we making? What kind of pressure are we putting on the Israelis? And how are they responding? Fair enough. An alliance works both ways. All both right. sides have to agree to things to be allies. Professor, we're out of time. We always enjoy the conversation. Thank you for being available at the last minute. Thank you for your expertise. Always enjoy the conversation. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. Thank you, sir. All right, off we go. We've got news, traffic, weather. Jim updates us on the traffic. And then Michael Aaron Woody joins us next. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.